Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp playing, white sheet wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Amen. Do you want to take a seat? Um, I think I said something very similar to this uh, not very long ago when we uh, were doing the series on Revelation. But um, teaching on the books that have been most understood, uh, misunderstood rather, for many of us is like my absolute favorite thing to do. I absolutely love this series on Genesis so passionately. It's a little bit intimidating actually because it's just such a beautiful book. It's like one of those sort of, it's not, not just what we thought it meant. It meant, means something else so brilliant. And in fact, chapter three, when we get to the curse story, is like legit my favorite talk ever. And that's coming soon. And it's just so good and I can't wait. But I do always feel a bit like, because we're talking about this like most incredible, beautiful stuff ever written. And then to try and kind of talk about it in a way that does it justice is uh, not always the easiest thing. Um, but it is a wonder, isn't it, really, when we think about it, when we understand what this stuff is, that we teach it to children. Um, that we teach to children that, uh, you know, one of God's most original favorite ones was willing to murder his son. That we teach to children, um, you know, just all of these strange kind of just cursy, this language around who, what God is like. And I'm not sure that I was ever objectly, that I can remember have like specific moments of being told this is historical fact, but I definitely went away from my childhood based on the answer to the questions that I received when I asked them, which was often just a kind of wishy-washy sort of, oh, it's a mystery how God works, isn't it? But a lot of questions about, as Ed mentioned last week, where did dinosaurs fit into this? How did Noah stop all of the animals eating each other? How did Jonah breathe for all that time? My personal favorite insomnia-inducing theological mind-bender. How did Adam and Eve father the whole of the human race in a way that didn't involve incest? Nobody ever could answer that for me. Um, and then beyond those huge theological problems, we also have a historical one. Because if you date the creation account according to Genesis, mankind was created about 6,000 years ago. But we have ancient cave drawings that date to about 40,000 years ago. Um, there's also a temple in Turkey that was built 11,000 years ago. Plenty of other stuff that predates the stories of the Hebrew people about their understanding of the beginning of time by millennia. And then, the more we delve, there is a plagiarism issue, specifically about now the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but there are striking similarities to creation myth and cosmology that are known to predate these stories. Ugaritic literature detailing, for instance, 
a pattern of a divine week activity, six days of action followed by a day of rest, or the Epic of Gilgamesh, which you may well be aware of, that has a story about a massive flood caused by a wrathful god and a hero who builds a boat and fills it with animal and grain and then sends out a dove to check for dry land, a story that predates the Hebrew Noah and Ark story by about a millennia and a half. Mm. For the record, a lot of Christians today believe that what I'm saying is absolute heresy. So don't just take my word for it, do your own research. But there is a troubling amount of historical data that says quite clearly the Mesopotamian stories came first. And the thing that I think I would also disagree with those Christians who believe something else um, is whether or not this is written in a context that we're supposed to impose our post-enlightenment fact, truth, right, wrong understanding of literature onto. Because those words want really anything to do with what this was written about. Um, and I'll come back to it, but the point has nothing to do with plagiarism, actually. It's all about how these ancient stories were retold um, about, in those versions, very angry, chaotic gods, um, and how we have this understanding of this different kind of god, but we'll get to it. Um, but just to follow this thought down a tangent that feels quite relevant this week, there is no clear, biblical, right, fact, truth answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? And how should we all be human together in our cities and nation states? And how should we make decisions together about laws, about life, about rights, about our bodies? None of the Bible, none of it, was written in the context of democracy, whatever we still hold that word to mean. And as we saw in the Revelation series, the most stark warning given to the new church as it grew around its belief in Jesus, mainly among the poor and the oppressed, lest we forget, was beware, beware, beware how power and influence will corrupt this gospel. This gospel wasn't written to ruling classes, classes around, about systems of government, and it absolutely doesn't give us clear answers to many of the big questions we're asking today. And I want to be very, very careful because I know that there will be profound depth of feeling about the big issue that's been in the news this week after the Supreme Court leak. I know that there will be profound depth of feeling on every single side. And I am not saying don't feel strongly. I am not saying do not campaign to stand up for the things that you feel strongly about, that you feel caused to, caused to campaign around. Heck, yes, justice is what we're called to. But what we need to be very, very careful about is claiming to know what we think God, happened, uh, God thinks about what happened this week. It is my strong belief that God is uniquely able to think and feel many things at the same time and hold space and feeling for an infinite number of us, everyone, everywhere, all at once. Do you know what we can certainly know? That in all of this, our call is to love. In all of this mess of being human together, Jesus taught a crowd that when they love each other, they are being most like God. Not when they correct each other, not when they blow each other away with the best moral argument, not when they have the best scriptural verses to defend their position. Man, I have seen a lot of verses held around Twitter this week. 
Love them. Love your enemies. Don't call them monsters. Pray for them. And I would include, invite them into civil discourse. Listen to them. It was always the most difficult part of this. Shed the weight of the Enlightenment's doctrine of true versus false. The sort of thought that there is a right way to organize humanity and we shall make it happen. Do you not think we'd have worked that out by now? Even if we go to the, like, the basic things, I think we probably all can agree that the gospel says, like, we look after the oppressed. Just take that for a sec. Which oppressed? Sometimes oppressed people's needs and views conflict. There is no answer to how we're supposed to organize. Not one, not one true one. What we have to do as mature Christians is accept that being human involves some mess. And what we have to know is what God says about his good order. And now as it happens, the ancient Hebrews were very familiar with this mess. And the story we're looking about this morning is about the order. So it starts the origins, um, the whole origin story of Genesis, it starts, as Ed looked at last week, with formless chaos. The era in which the Old Testament came together is very significant. And I know that Ed mentioned the exile last week, and I know that we go on and on about the exile, but I want to make sure that we know why it's so important that we get that these books originated then. And when we say originated, it's not, of course, that they were written from scratch at that point, but older writings and the oral tradition, which was made up of different genres of historical accounts, lists of names, songs, poems, pieces of art, they were collated and edited and compiled at this point with a very specific purpose. Because let's just think about it for a second. The exile, this all is lost point after they've gone through everything, got to the promised land and built the temple and done all that, and they've lost it, been ripped from the home and taken away. And then in 539 BC, they are returned from captivity to this land that has been completely destroyed. So it's the equivalent for us returning today for an exile that began in 1974. So anyone under 50 in here, that's most of us, isn't it? Uh, we've never worshipped in the temple. We've never known anything other than captivity. And I think that probably I am now going to do a dangerous thing of projecting a lot of Western, Western individualism onto this. But there had to be a certain amount of those generations returning that were like, who is this God? This rubble is the promised land? What does he even promise us now that our grandparents and their grandparents have screwed it all up? Are we even still God's chosen people? This is the context in which specifically the first five books of the Bible are formed and aimed at speaking towards. Genesis may well spell a lot of doom and gloom to, about human sin and all the rest of it to us, but actually it's a message of fundamental hope and optimism the origin of origin stories about who God is and what he is like to this confused, lost generation. And so now as I read it, remember that these opening verses were written as poetry. It's a beautiful song of worship, the kind of which we'd see in Psalms and Proverbs, but purposefully written to be like a sort of overture to the whole of the Old Testament, and it would have likely been sung together at gatherings. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. 
And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And we've just got a little image that I'm going to show you, um, or Isaac's going to show you very kindly, um, of what they believed that that looked like, just as you can see, so you can picture it in your mind as I carry on reading. There's water at the top and water at the bottom, and the earth is flat. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry land ground, the dry ground land, and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in, in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. You might start to notice the pattern and the symmetry itself, which itself contains a message. This, so we've got the command, let there be, the execution, it was so, and the assessment, it was good. The pattern itself is a comment on the goodness of God's order. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, the days, and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in a vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water team with living creatures and let the birds fly the earth, above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in numbers and fill the water in the seas. It was evening and morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. It was always intended as doxology, as worship. It's a triumphant invocation of the God who has created all things because of his love. It's like a come, sing with me, our great overture, the introduction to the story of our people about our God, the creator of the universe. As Ed said last week, this is not a passage about the how of creation. The ancient Hebrews weren't post-enlightenment fact hounds. This is a great poem about who their God is. I'm going to start a video now. Don't let it distract you. It's a brilliant video you can find on YouTube, and the narration and the music really enhance it. It's called Time Lapse of the Universe. An incredible depiction of the 13.8 billion years that have elapsed since the very first moment that time can be traced back to, according to science. It's just over 10 minutes long, and to scale, each passing second represents 22 million years. Just ponder on that every second. This is what science can trace.
of how our incredible planet was formed. From this primordial cloud of gas, cosmic dust, and the forces of gravity, that whole systems of stars were formed through boundless space all those billions of years ago. We are one planet circling one star in one galaxy out of at least 200 billion more galaxies. And Genesis was never making a scientific claim about that, but it was making a theological claim, a celebration of what our God is like. Say this with me and take a stance against the chaos. The Iron Age was brutal, exile aside. Life expectancy around 30, child mortality one in three, tribal rules about the organization of human life, not ones that are very thinkable to us. Experience his good order in the face of the pain and disorder all around us. Remember his good ways as we labor on through this life. And there's a number of things, as I said, that are written in that are comments on the, on the stories that they were adapting, on the Babylonian gods that they were um, juxtaposing this story to. Uh, which makes kind of sense of, the, of why they're Mesop um, mimicking the Mesopotamian myths. The creation gods of those stories were very chaotic. In fact, the earth was formed as an accident, a byproduct of deities in battle. In the Genesis poem, our God orders, his world is designed. Plants, seeds, trees, fruits, more seeds, birds of the air, fish of the sea, living creatures, all according to their kind. Our God distinguishes, deliberate in his design of the detail. The Babylonians were also very into astrology. The sun and the moon they worshipped as gods, and the stars they believed um, predicted the future. I've always loved the little note in verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater and the lesser. He also made the stars. MBD, just a footnote to our God. Our God made your gods. They're his creation. Verse 21 also uses a word for sea creature that in Canaanite mythology is the same word for great enemy or monster. Our God doesn't have rivals to be defeated. We're not worried about the Babylonian gods of our captors. Our God made these creatures. He has no rival. And this isn't just a like, our God's better than your God's, you know, we're right, you're wrong, chant across a football pitch. This is offering a whole new, entirely unprecedented of what this one true God is like, leading up to the whole apex of the thing. Us, as we shall see next week, mankind is created as God's crowning achievement. It's only following day six that God makes mankind in his image and declares what he has made very good rather than good. That's the climax of the overture. The whole story of God and his relationship with his people that unfolds over the pages to come is presupposed by these statements. Our God is without peer or competitor. Our God is all-powerful. He speaks to his creation. He's concerned with its welfare. He names his creation. In the Hebrew tradition, to name something is to assert sovereignty over it. He blesses his creation. He saw that it was good. It's repeated again and again throughout.
Some Christian traditions, maybe ones you've been exposed to, have a tendency to articulate the deep chasm between the goodness of God and the unhealthiness of the world. Almost like we sort of think he's a bit preoccupied with how terrible it is here. But it's absolutely at odds with this account. The world itself is a vehicle for his blessing. That is its abiding characteristic. God saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And the word good isn't like opposed to bad. It has aesthetic value itself. It's beautiful would be more apt. This is a song to sing together in the midst of all that is brutal and hard about the world. God is good and he thinks his world is beautiful and he planned all the detail in all the diversity and he loves it that way. And you are the reason that he made all this. It was a love song, the overture about the good news, the goodest news that there will ever be, the goodness of God at the heart of all this, that love was always the reason for all of it. Um, we know from the, the dome picture that was up there for a while, this sort of flat disc and the loads of things that you know, science has proved it's not quite right. Um, they certainly didn't get it all right, but um, having said that, we mustn't come to this from any sense of looking for scientific facts on it. I do want to share this interesting little story of a Canadian astrophysicist named Hugh Ross. He's a professor at Caltech, top of his game, uh, fulfilling many of the stereotypes of physical and vocal attributes of your average astrophysicist. Raised agnostic. Um, but for him, it was the scientific pursuit of uh, any logical explanation for the moment, this zillionth of a second that preceded the Big Bang at the start of that video. That's what dogged him. Because while now everyone pretty much agrees on what's happened since the Big Bang, no one has any real scientific answer to what preceded it. And to be very clear, I cannot verify that I understood very much of what he was talking about. But I do find it very compelling that some of the greatest minds, Einstein himself, came to the very firm belief in the existence of God based on the astrophysics that he mapped. So Dr. Ross sets out to find God and finds, via some other explorations, he gets, gets to the Genesis 1 and 24 other references in the Bible. Um, but he finds that what was written there is absolutely in keeping with the laws of physics as they're understood today. So obviously not the 724-hour period Thing. He was aware that that wasn't a historical week. But we're talking about sequence and details of creation events that he found throughout the Bible. And then he did some sums, and he determined that prob the probability of these writers at this time in antiquity being correct about all of that, if they were not divinely inspired about their truth, because science didn't account for a lot of it for a couple of millennia afterwards, was 10 to the power of 300. And so he decided that the Jesus thing for, was for him, and he became a Christian, which is one way of doing it. And I know the state of things, the state of division, the state of some of our family lives, the horrific things we're seeing on our screens from a very scary war that's happening at the minute, all the ways we're still living with the aftermath of COVID, the dating scene in LA, I hear the stories. It has asked, caused us all to ask some big questions right now about who God is and what he thinks of all this. 
So let us come back to the overture as often as we need to. He made it all, and he saw that it was good. God loved mankind so much that he went to this expense, this expanse of building 100 billion stars over 13.8 billion years and 546 sextillion miles. This grand, unfathomable evolutionary sequence eventually forming our network of planets around the sun, fine-tuned all 41 characteristics of our solar system required to sustain life, including three billion years of microscopic organisms that would eventually lead to animal life and then to ours. Every second, 22 million years so that mankind, God's reason for it all, would only appear in the last fraction of the second of this thing. It's coming up in just a sec. A time span outside of our comprehension. Also, that during this tiny era, oh, I missed it. <laughs> I've seen it before, it's fine. Would know here. I mean, it's wild, isn't it? When you when you zoom out and you really think about it, it's wild. It's incredible. And it does have massive implications for the meaning of life when we just sit with it all. How could we ever believe that we could ever be just a rock? Sorry, that was a really obnoxious <laughs> reference for if you haven't seen the film. I hate it when preachers do that, isn't it? It's so annoying. But um, the thing is, I saw both multiverse movies this week, the ones that are in the cinema. If you want to talk about the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness, Marvel versus that one is pretty much where we are. I have so many words about how much I hated the Marvel film. <laughs> but that one is beautiful, flipping egg. We feel, I mean, we love that film so much because it's, it's about this search for meaning. But we know we're made for so much more than just getting through life. And God's answer is, I am here in the midst of the chaos. We are made for the full gamut of this beauty. The beauty of fully engaging with being human in the joy, in the sorrow, sorrow being just the necessary consequence of being fully engaged with what it is to be human, in the tangled mess of human beautiful relationships. And there are details that are coming up as we go through the rest of Genesis, <clears throat> or the first three chapters of Genesis, that will um, point to Jesus. They always did, these ancient post-exile Hebrews writing their post-exile stories adding details that they couldn't possibly have known foreshadows the good news, the goodest news that there will ever be, the total restoration <clears throat> of all that is broken in our beautiful world that Jesus brought and is still bringing. The beauty in the gospel itself, that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, transforming all of it with this beauty. Even a Roman execution construct becomes a beautiful thing. Imagine if we really believed that the saving beauty of Jesus was all the world needed, not the moral correctness of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, but the beauty of this thing. Legend has it that a pagan prince of Russia in the late 10th century, Vladimir the Great, wanted a new religion to unite the Russian people around. So he sent emissaries to all the neighboring realms to find out about the gods that they worshiped, which included a lot of Christian countries. Nothing sparked his fancy until an envoy returned from the Byzantine capital of Constantinople. <clears throat> and these um, messengers described the transcendent beauty that they experienced in the cathedral there. They said, we did not know where we were, on heaven or on earth. All we know is that God lives there with people and their service is better than in any other country. We cannot forget that beauty. So we cannot remain anymore in paganism. I'm not sure about what the rest of Vladimir the Great did with that information in terms of how he built other things there, but we'll, we can leave that. It's quite a point though, isn't it? It describes somehow as the aroma, the pleasing aroma of Christ. That's how we're supposed to spread this. So I can't really talk about the creation account without a quick word to the creatives in the room. And by the creatives in the room, I actually mean all of us. Because if we're made in the image of God, then we are creatives, because it's what he's like. What he is like is someone who makes order out of chaos. So even if it's not something that you feel particularly um, has ever been affirmed in you, I'll say a quick word to you first. You are creative. You are creative. It may not look like it looks like in other people, but this is a part of what it is to be human. Find your creative outlook, outputs. They are very, very good for you. I was sitting there during the worship, and I don't know if you noticed, my daughter Margot was being quite disruptive, but her and her friend Charlie had drawn this, drawn this monster out of many colors. It, well, they're both very good at art. This wasn't their best work. But I, she came and showed me it with a big smile on her face. And just the joy. Look what we made. Look what we made. That's what it's for. That's what it's about. Those of you working in creative fields, in creative fields let me remind you, your good stories, your good music, your good buildings, taking and styling beautiful images, any way in which we collaborate in making depictions of the joy and the sorrow of the human condition, however we express our creative self, this is worship too. I had a, this is a, maybe a bit self-indulgent for a moment, but I had a quite powerful experience. I feel like God spoke to me about this because I do this part-time. I love, I love parts of this thing. I also really want to write, and I've known that I've wanted to write for a really long time, and I do struggle with just the time management aspect of life at the minute. And in a service a few months ago, I actually don't remember who was leading, but they said at the end of the worship, why don't you just right now tell God um, 
what it is that you know, you're feeling right now. And what I was feeling right now was annoyed because I'd gone through another week and I hadn't even opened my creative writing document that I keep trying to get to. And in this moment, I felt like God said, and when I say I felt like God said, I know people say that. Basically, I had a thought and then I experienced the spirit in physical ways in my body that made me think, oh, I think this might be God. And I felt quite emotional as I had the thought. But the thought, I believe, was God speaking to me, was what if you really believed that the greatest act of worship you could make was writing these stories? This is our worship. And because this is Hollywood, let's just remember, this has nothing to do with fame. This has nothing to do with the internet praising us. This has nothing to do with the glory being ours. Let us not confuse these things. The one who made it is the one that this is all about. The one we worship. And as a church, we are so passionate about um, the creative arts being a message to the world again from the church. It has been throughout various points in history. The greatest art has been made by the church. I'm sure some of it's happening at the minute, but this is what we want to invest in and um, show the world the beauty of God's creation through the things that we make. This is how he speaks. This is the sweet aroma that we have, but not for our personal glory, for his so on that note, let us stand. Um, Tafia, would you mind coming up again? What I would love you to do as um, Tafia and the band sing this song is close your eyes and open your hands. Because um, I think that for a lot of us, this is what's really important about this moment as much as anything else is remembering the one who creates order in the chaos of this life, in the brutality of this life, is worshiping the one who creates, who orders, who calls it good, remembering what he's like. Come, Holy Spirit. Will you fill us now from our head to our feet? Remind us of who you are and what you are like and the beauty, the beauty of your ways, the ways that we're made for, the beauty of your gospel, the beauty of your love for us this beautiful story that we're included in and drawn in.